0: We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and now we come to meet a very wealthy, successful man who has attained powerful status at an early age, you know, a.k.a. the rich young ruler, as he is called. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17. My thesis this morning is that we have been too hard on this guy. Like in the traditional reading of this passage... Thoughts are attributed to him. Motivations of the heart are, are surmised. His words have been misinterpreted in such a way um, to arrive at this very negative portrait that I, that I just don't believe is the case. So as we read through, I'm going to kind of deliberately and slowly go through the passage and, and see if I can't convince you that uh, the rich young ruler, yes, he's deceived, no, he's, he's not deceived quite in the way that we have been frequently taught. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which was a good question. There was a question that m- many people were asking in that day. What must I do to enter into the, into the future age? So the way the Jews broke up period of history was between two ages, the present age and the age to come. The present age, their age, was a dark period characterized by injustice, oppression, foreign occupation, sin, and death. But many Jews in that day expected God to do something climactic, In the very near future, a new age was about to dawn, an unprecedented time of freedom for Israel, justice, peace, punishment of evildoers. Some of them actually believed in the resurrection of the dead, that all of the righteous saints from the Old Testament would come back, would be raised to to new life. So when he says, good teacher, how can I be, how can I, how can I enjoy eternal life? He's he's not thinking of some kind of dwelling up in the clouds, strumming a harp, but he's saying, How can I be part of that? Traditionally, the criticism centers on the little word, two-letter word, here, do. There's the problem, we say. He's he's focusing on what he must do. He's trying to earn his way into heaven by some good deed. And, and we wag our finger at him and, and criticize him for that fact. But really, it was just a common expression. What must I do to receive this, this inheritance that we all believe is, is right on the cusp of, of coming into being? And you'll notice the word that Jesus focuses on is not the word do, but the word good. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, do you call me good? Why? No one is good except God alone. A very strange response. People interpret it several ways. Probably the most popular way of understanding it is that Jesus is rebuking him for his flattery. And this man comes along, he's trying to butter up Jesus, ingratiate him, he, he calls him good, and Jesus rebukes him and says, Only God is good. Another way of reading it is that Jesus is challenging his his whole notion of uh, of morality. He says, "Good, well, you have no idea what is what is truly good. You think that I am good. You you will you are going to say that you are good, but uh, such goodness doesn't even begin to measure up to to real goodness, the real goodness of God. Both of those could be accurate, but." What I think is that they they miss the picture. Look at the picture. Here you have a rich man who runs to Jesus. A, a very undignified way of conducting yourself if you're a person of wealth and status. He runs to Jesus. He falls down on his knees before Jesus. He is there. He is in the dust, soiling his rich garments with the dirt and. Uh, and that is not the picture of insincerity here is a man who is yearning for tr- for truth now it is true that good was a title reserved for god and, and so what i envision is is a man who's out of breath who just blurts out good teacher and jesus jesus says good you why no one is good except God alone. A long pause ensues. It's like do you realize what you just said? You have almost given away my secret. That's a prominent theme in the gospel of Mark, the messianic secret. It's a moment of irony where where he says, "Good teacher, you have spoken far more accurately than you ever could have realized when you said those words. He goes on, verse 19. You know the commandments, which was the standard reply of any rabbi to the question. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Rabbi, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Is he saying that he is perfectly sinless from the age of five? Right? All 613 laws of the Old Testament, he has has perfectly kept those sinlessly since he was in diapers. No, the man is saying, my life has been characterized by sexual purity i am a loving son i I conduct my business dealings with integrity i haven't gotten my wealth through exploitation Uh, and and i am on my knees because my soul is troubled and i i feel like there is something that is still lacking Verse 21, this is the great passage. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus is a loving guy, right? He goes around the, the Bible loving all kinds of people, except I don't think you'll ever find a passage, a verse that says, and Jesus looked at the hypocrites and he loved them. That's, that's like the one category of people that, and so we're not dealing with the hypocrite. He looks at him. I wonder if he sees something of himself in this, guy, in this man, this devout, probably early 30-year-old early man on his knees. Jesus loves him and says to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And I take Jesus at his word here, that Jesus is not misinforming him. He's not, he's not setting this guy up to be a sermon illustration. of, of he, he means it. There is one thing this man lacked. And he said that you need to trade in your wealth and come follow me. Had anybody yet in the Gospels done that? the answer is yes. There were 12 men who were there following Jesus who had given up uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas. They had left their possessions behind. They had said goodbye to their families and homes and they decided to become Jesus Christ's disciple believing that in so doing he would lead them into the life of the age to come. So what Jesus does is he looks at this guy who has an average annual wealth of salary of a million dollars and says the one thing you lack is you have to become poor and join us those 13 men had voluntarily embraced poverty they were sleeping on the ground outside at night sometimes we we've read in the story how they didn't have food they'd be walking around the edge of the fields picking the heads of grain, because they didn't have anything to eat. They didn't have a donkey, apparently, to travel into the city of Jerusalem with. They had little more than the shirts on their back. And Jesus says, come and join us. Trade in what you have for a place in our company, for uh, the fellowship of of the ring, the fellowship of poverty and persecution. That's what he's calling him to. Can you leave the penthouse behind? And he can't. Verse 22: Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. After he left, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And, and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is another way of saying to enter into the age to come. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. Impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or house. Or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, a hundredfold, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, parenthesis, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So you get the idea of how I read this passage. Some people see here a flattering, self-righteous man who is trying to earn his way into heaven by his exemplary moral record. And the common view in that day about wealth and economics is that if you were wealthy and you were a Jew, most likely the reason you were wealthy is because you were you were a morally upright and and and, and proper Jewish. Figure, And so here we have, we have the worst of self-righteousness. This man boasts that he's kept all of the, the commandments. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Really? Really, go sell all your possessions and give it to the to the poor. Because Jesus knew, not only had he not, had he, he hadn't kept all the commandments, he hadn't even kept the very first commandment, which is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This man, in 60 seconds, Jesus was able to read him like a book. Peer through his, his divine stare into the man's heart and realize that this man worshipped his money. So the traditional reading is that it's an example of Jesus preaching the law to the man. And that is one of the uses of the law, commands. Romans 3.20, one of the purposes of the law is to convict us of our sin. To show us, to awaken us to our own sinfulness, and the fact that we can never be good enough to merit eternal life, and if we're trusting in, in, in any of our own personal merit, uh, we, we, we fail to live up to God's standard. And so Jesus preaches the law and helps him, helps him feel, tries to help him feel his need for grace and forgiveness. Which is all princ- in principle true. I just don't think that that is what's, what's happening here. If you've been around the church long enough, then you're probably familiar with the Kennedy question. Named after D. James Kennedy, famous pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in, in Florida, who, he, wrote, he wrote up an evangelism curriculum called Evangelism Explosion. Kennedy question is one of those litmus test questions you ask somebody before you, share, before you share the gospel with them. If you die tonight... And you were standing before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, Brad? How would you respond? That's the question you asked. The Kennedy question was one that I learned when I was a student at the University of Arizona with Campus Crusade for Christ. We would ask that when we'd go out on onto the campus to share the four spiritual laws with people. And inevitably, we'd always hear the wrong answer. What's the wrong answer? If you've been around, around church long enough, the wrong answer is that, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I've tried my best to, to lead a moral life, and, and sirens are going off above their head and flashing red lights, right? Wrong answer. I remember taking going home on a Christmas break and sitting down with my mother and my father and my sister individually and asking each one of them the Kennedy question, Wrong answer! Well, there are plenty of people in our church who would say, I used to give the wrong answer. I grossly overestimated my own moral goodness, and I grossly underestimated the the holiness and righteousness of God. You could use this illustration with kind of any inanimate object, but it works especially well with the sewing needle. Take Pull out a sewing needle this afternoon. What you will see is to the human eye, a sewing needle is absolutely pristine. Perfectly cylindrically silver and shiny. It, I mean, it looks perfect. How did a human being create this? And yet, when you put it under a microscope, you find it's all pocked and misshapen and, and gnarly and, and ugly. Anybody who gets close enough into a human heart will see the same thing. And Jesus, that's what some of us would say. Probably, hopefully all of us would say, Jesus exposed me. He exposed that in me. Likewise, I think there was a meteor shower a couple nights ago. If you gaze up into the night sky and you see a star several thousand light years away, you look at it and it's... It's rather dull and faded, but but if you fly through the spaceship and you get within an inch of it, you find that it has a brightness and a and a hotness and all-consumingness that, uh, you know, if you thousand light years away, you never would have imagined, and, and such is such is the the presence of a holy God. So when you come to realize, when you come to realize that your morality and spirituality are just nothing but misshapen, misshapen, pocked uh, pieces of silver compared to God's righteous standard, then you really are ready for the good news. You got to have bad news before you have before you have the good news. And the good news is that God supplies us. In theology, we call it an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is is not our own, that belongs, not surprisingly, to Jesus Christ, which he credits to you, it is provided to you on the basis, uh, as a free gift, of God's grace, to be be received by faith. And that is all true. Um, That kind of forgiveness is the greatest thing in the universe, we've discovered. That, That grace is the subject of every one of our songs. And I, I say amen to every bit of that. But that is not what's going on here. What this passage is actually about is the woman we prayed for just a few minutes ago. Miriam, how did you say her middle name? <laughs> Yahya, Ibrahim. And you probably read her story in the news She was born to a Muslim father who left her and her mother at the age of six. Her mother is an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian. She later married a Christian man, and she's pregnant. She's due to give birth in, like, any day. June the 1st, or June the 3rd is her due date. And they're going to wait till she gives birth, and then they're going to hang her. The fact is, is that she could easily say, I convert, I believe that Muhammad is God's prophet, Uh, I convert to Islam, let me go free, the authorities could release her, and she'll sneak out of the country in the dead of night, be granted asylum in the United States, and she could go on to the set of Good Morning America and say, I was just, fingers crossed, faking it. I never really converted. Not in my heart. I, I've always been a Christian in my heart. But I can't imagine Jesus telling her to do that. I don't know that Jesus ever says, you can give me your heart, but you can keep your life. In her case, you can give me your heart, but you can keep your baby. In order to follow me into the life of the age to come, can't you imagine him saying that you must bid your goodbyes to this little girl in your womb? Like, see maybe two days of her life, potentially. Maybe a week of, of nursing her. But you have to say goodbye to that. Goodbye to your husband. Goodbye to your family. You basically have to sell your life. That is what I require for you to follow me. So the question in this passage is not if you died tonight and were to stand before God and he were to ask you. The question is, what if Jesus told you to give up the thing most dear? What if Jesus told you to auction off your family's future? We all know that the family is one of the great gifts of God and the family in America is deteriorating. God God wants us to care for and and nourish our families. What if you became convinced that Jesus was calling you into the inner city ghetto? Uh, Would you endanger your family? Five kids and your wife and go there would you send your kids to a bad school pull your kids out of school at just the wrong time when your oldest child is about to go into high school would you hamstring and disadvantage your kids if you are convinced that that's what he that that's what he said you know maybe it's even more deadly he's He calls you to go on an assignment to Jordan or to Palestine or the Sudan, and you're going to be gone nine out of 12 months for the next five years. Your wife is basically going to be spouseless, your children fatherless. If you were convinced that that was the request, would you? You know, often people who have never experienced same-sex attraction, who have never felt that before, when you listen to them Talk about that issue, and we would all agree that is the buzz issue in, in the culture and the church today. When they talk about it, it sounds like they have no idea how powerful a force that is inside of certain people's souls and hearts. Now, I don't want to make that mistake in the way that I, I phrase this question. Um, but if you became convinced that Jesus in the Bible forbade homosexual, homosexual activity, would you be willing to say no to that for the rest of your life? Would you be willing to leave that scene, that lover, that life? I could say the same thing to a heterosexual couple. If you knew that that relationship you are in, that he said no to it, absolutely not. Would you be willing to walk away into the, the world of loneliness again? I say this to us as Presbyterians. Does Jesus call anybody any longer to lifetime vows of celibacy and poverty? Or was, just that, was that something just Jesus did in the Middle Ages? But, but like he doesn't do that in the 21st century with Protestants anymore. What if you became convinced that that he was saying that to you? That you have to, I'm probably belaboring the point, but effectively, it's all about trust. You have to trust me. And that if I tell you to give up something that feels supremely valuable, something that feels like it's part of my identity, you're taking away part of me, well, you have to You have to trust me that my assessment of the situation is correct. Now, stepping back as as Brad, the preacher, I realize not everybody is told to give up all their wealth and give it to the poor, just as not everyone is called to build a giant three-story boat and load it with a pair of animals, right? But what if Jesus calls you to give up something more than he even calls, calls for for me. Because I believe he does that. He does that kind of, of thing. And what that would mean is that you would have to venture into a world of incredible risk. Like this guy, to liquidate all of your assets because a 35-year-old man who you have... Met for 60 seconds tells you to do so, that would be kind of ludicrous. <laughs> and for you to follow Jesus into something extremely difficult, a Jesus whom you've never seen before, who is supposed to have lived 2,000 years ago, that is absolutely crazy. It's impossible. It is impossible to get a, a rich person to do that, they say. And as the story of the gospel goes on into the book of Acts, you discover that God, in fact, does the impossible. In the next few chapters, a rich tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus is going to give away 50% of all of his wealth. Later on by the end, a a rich man who is part of the Jewish establishment, the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, is going to give away his family's tomb. Later on, still, there's going to be a rich Levite from the island of Malta, of Cyprus, and he's going to sell his entire family inheritance, their land. And what you're going to find is God does the impossible, and rich people do enter, enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you met him last week, but Brian and Jordan had a couple of friends in from the UK who they had met on um, during their, when Brian was doing PhD studies at the University of Sussex in Brighton, they met this, this couple and have stayed friends ever since. I don't do a good job of telling the story. You'll have to ask it to them exactly, but the, the way I understand it, when they arrived in Heathrow and they got off the plane and walked into, I don't know, one of the restaurants there, they bought a couple of small sandwiches, and they're like, yeah, these are These are not bad, a little little on the small side. And they get up to the cash register, and the guy said, How many pounds was it? It was like 12 pounds. It was was like $19 for two small sandwiches. And and Jordan or Brian cries out, We're going to starve to death over here. And it was one calamitous mishap after another as they go through the first couple of weeks in the UK, culture shock and, and all of that. Finally, Brian... He gets to the point that his wit's in, and he says, we've got to go find a church. We're going to go to this one this Sunday. It turned out to be a small 40 or so person congregation, and they had woven into their church's DNA this element. They said that nobody will come to our church without, uh, they'll, nobody will leave here without being asked to go to lunch come over to our house for lunch afterwards. And every Sunday, that was the case. There was, as I understand it, like not a Sunday in in two years while they were there, that they didn't have a family table to dine at. If you look at verse 28, Jesus tells us one of the reasons one of the ways that God makes the impossible happen. Verse 28. Peter says, "Lord, see what we've left everything to follow you. We we've, we've we've done this." Maybe there's almost a tinge of self-pity in his voice. And Jesus says, "Don't pity yourself. It will not go unrewarded. You're going to turn your your family farm into mansions of gold in the sky." is not what Jesus says. He says, you're going to turn your family farm in for 100 farms. You're going to turn, give away, give up one mother, and you're going to get 100 mothers. You're going to give up three brothers and sisters, and you're going to get a room full of people and tables on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, brothers and sisters who are yours forever. That's one of the reasons that that you need to travel and, and go to Yakima, or get out of Boise, go to another country to discover that you've got a hundred mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters a hundredfold around the world, and there's always a warm meal there for you. That's the promise, as one person puts it, that no matter how trite the saying go, the saying may sound, it's all true that you cannot outgive God. No matter what these disciples gave away to follow Jesus, it is going to be more than made up for them by what he does next. The community of disciples that would form after the cross and resurrection, he says they will be your support. This is what we see later in the book of Acts, the early Christians would sell off their property to support each other. The you would lose a family, you would gain a larger family. Today it means that, you sh- that no Christian should ever have to eat Thanksgiving dinner alone. That no Christian in this place should ever spend Christmas alone. That no Christian who can't pay their gas bill should, should ever go cold. That no one will be left uncared for because you have a family. That no sick person will go unvisited in their their bed. That no brother or sister in Christ who is stuck behind prison bars. Because he says, there will be persecutions, but none of them will be forgotten. Because trust me, when when you're breathing your last breath, and you look back on your life as a Christian, you will be able to say that you gained so much more than you ever left behind. I don't want to be too hard on mainstream American Christianity. I don't feel like I'm at the place to, to be its critic, but I'm going to have a critical statement as I con- conclude. Um, I th- I fear that there are A lot of people who say, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you. And a lot of worship songs sound a lot like that. I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you. But when the cards are on the table, I won't do that. I won't lose my dignity. I won't turn my back on my family. I won't give up that which I've worked so hard for. I won't. I won't stay single. I won't move. (laughs) Um, And he may not be requiring something so radical of you, but I I believe he still does that with some. Um, It's a radical rethink of who are you going to trust to assess your life and to assess the next one. Who are you going to believe The testimony of your own eyes, which says that that is really stupid to go sell off everything that you own because a 35-year-old guy told you. With the assessment of the future where he says you, you can't make a sacrifice that won't be worth it. If you just sold off a million dollars worth of goods, well, what is a million times a (laughs) hundredfold? So what's it going to be? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, this is how it must be. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen.